Hi everyone, this is Sarah McFarland from Inside Scientific, the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Our real science sessions focus on connecting with the researchers, educators, and industry professionals from all walks of life that make scientific discovery and innovation possible. We talk about their work, their passions, their pitfalls, why they got into science in the first place, and where the road lies ahead. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Martin Young, a professor of medicine at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. His research focuses on understanding nutrition and the timing of meals and how that influences cardiometabolic and cardiovascular health. Martin holds a deep appreciation for the art of teaching and mentorship and has dedicated himself to uplifting undergraduates, graduates, medical students, and postdoctoral fellows throughout his career. So here today to share about your life and also your passions in and out of the lab, I'm really pleased to welcome you, Martin. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Sarah, thank you very much for the invitation to, to talk today. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here um, and I'm looking forward to our discussion. Yeah, we're happy to have you. So I'm going to jump off with the first question here. Uh, where did you grow up and how did your youth influence your path and passion towards science? Sure. Uh, well, thank you uh, again, Sarah. Um, so it's kind of a, a complicated question in my case, unfortunately. I guess nothing's ever straightforward. Um, so my mother is American and my father is British, which means that I've moved back and forth across the Atlantic several times in my life. Um, so much to the disappointment of my wife, I don't have an English accent. And that is unfortunately because, well, or fortunately, um, I, I spent the first 10 years of my life in Ohio, uh, where my mother uh, had a, a familial ties. So around the age of 10, however, my family moved back to England, and that's really where I finished all of my schooling in, in an area called Yorkshire. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. Throughout my uh, childhood, I loved to solve problems and puzzles, especially those that were based on math. So I, I loved math problems and I was a total nerd. Um, so much so that um, during the last years of the equivalent to high school in Britain, uh, I took extra math classes uh, and took extra, got extra math qualifications. So my teachers were convinced that when I went to university, I was going to pursue math or some kind of math-based science like physics or engineering. Um, but however, I didn't. Instead, it was biology that I really felt the, the strongest pull towards. Um, and this was because I felt that it was, a, it was a great intellectual challenge and I was completely fascinated by it. Because I, I recall whenever we, we had biology classes that um, I would often try to apply some type of math-based principles to understanding what was happening in biology, and I always failed. I could <laughs> just, it never worked. There were always these exceptions to these rules. And so I felt like I was being outsmarted by nature. And so that really in intrigued me and it made me realize even at a young age that there was so much that we don't understand about biology. And that if we could unlock those secrets, that that could ultimately help uh, the benefit of, 
of humankind as well as all life on the planet. And so really that was the kind of puzzle that I wanted to solve. Yeah, that's amazing. And I feel like a lot of people that we speak to on this podcast have a similar kind of pull at a young age. So that's really awesome. Um, so my next question here is, uh, where did you study and how did you end up in your current field? Cool. Well, um, since I was um, a British American dual national and I was living in the UK at that time, I had the opportunity to apply to universities in England. Um, I applied to five different universities and in each case I was trying to get into the biochemistry courses. And really to my surprise, I was very fortunate. I got into Oxford University. I was Amazing. Yeah, I was super stoked. <laughs> and my family was. And even the school was very surprised because no one else in the school, in the history of the school, had ever gotten into Oxford before. Um, so I really, I, I felt very privileged. And that was really a turning point for my scientific career. I mean, it really laid the foundation for everything to come thereafter. I was there in, in total for seven years um, where I got my bachelor's, my master's, and also my PhD, all in biochemistry. Um, it was during my undergraduate studies in Oxford uh, where I really fell in love with metabolism. It was the, the concept that cells and organisms had evolved all these different pathways to convert simple precursor molecules into very large complex molecules and at the same time also be able to use some of that carbon for the generation of useful energy that ultimately could be used by the cell for work. I just, uh, I, it just blew my mind. And so um, it wasn't until I guess it was the time between my first and my second year um, at, uh, during the undergraduate period, uh, when I had an opportunity to get my hands wet in a lab and I was, I was actually, uh, studying an enzyme called triolase, uh, which is an enzyme that breaks down, um, a disaccharide that's found in fungi, often generated by, um, things like mushrooms and things like this. That's how we get the majority of it. And it was, it was brilliant. It was wonderful. I actually saw in real time, got this data um, that allowed me to apply a lot of the scientific principles um, that I'd been learning about in lectures. And so I was absolutely hooked um, at that time. There was no way I, I was going to do anything else but metabolism. And, and so during my master's and my PhD, I really gravitated towards a, a lab that was um, putting these principles into um, more practice in terms of disease states and we're really trying to understand how skeletal muscle metabolism was important during diabetes and obesity. And in fact, even to this day, my lab is interested in some of those same principles, trying to understand instead how heart metabolism um, is altered in these same disease states. Fantastic. Such a cool path. And uh, congrats on your acceptance to Oxford. I know it was a number of years ago, but that's a that's a very big deal. Um, yeah. And so I mean, my next even today. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So my next question for you then is 
who has in influenced your career and how? Yeah. So, you know, as, as with everybody, um, mentors always play pivotal roles uh, in guiding career paths and, and important life decisions. Um, and mentors really come in various shapes and forms, uh, both in professionally as well as personally. Um, I've been fortunate to be influenced by uh, numerous mentors over the years, um, and many of them I'm blessed to call friends. I mean, they really are true friends. Uh, one noteworthy example must be Heinrich Tagmar. So Heinrich, I don't know if you know this, but Heinrich was the last graduate student of the late Hans Krebs, who won the Nobel Prize for uh, discovering the Krebs cycle, which was named after him. Uh, so Heinrich is absolutely a leader in metabolism and particularly cardiac metabolism and has really been an inspiration throughout my career. So during the, the last year I was completing my PhD in Oxford, Heinrich came to Oxford as a visiting professor on sabbatical. And during that time, we got to know each other, uh, and he offered me a job as a postdoctoral fellow in his lab. Wow. I, I, was, I was really honored. I was taken aback. I'd already accepted a, a postdoctoral position in Boston, unfortunately. Uh, well, fortunately, it was a great experience in Boston, too. So I went to Heinrich's lab for my second postdoctoral fellowship, and that was in Houston, Texas. This was really a huge turning point for my career because up to that point, I had been studying skeletal muscle. And Heinrich was interested in the heart. He's a cardiac metabolism guy. And so it gave me the opportunity to change my focus towards cardiac physiology and develop a scientific career in heart disease. Now, 20 plus years later, uh, down that road, I'm now vice director uh, for research in a cardiology division here at UAB. So without Heinrich's mentorship and influence, my career trajectory would have been absolutely completely different. And so I'm really grateful to Heinrich. So Heinrich, if you're listening, thank you so much. Amazing. Uh, so now you're probably going to be forever a heart guy, which is cool. Absolutely. My the research is now within my heart. Absolutely. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. So since you brought up your research, let's talk briefly about that. Um, it's pretty much common sense that we maintain our physical health in part, thanks to our normal bodily rhythms, sleeping and eating, for instance. But on the grand scale of your research, has anything surprised you about how time of day and nutrition influence our health? It's a great question. And, and the straightforward answer is I've really been blown away by the enormity of, of their impact, uh, both in terms of the diverse number of processes that are influenced as well as the magnitude of the effects. So I love chronobiology. I love time of day and I love nutrition too, but I'm, I'm going to focus here a little bit on the, the uh, chronobiology or the, the study of time of day. So my lab is really interested in something called circadian clocks, which coordinate biological processes in a temporal manner. So I like to think of these clocks a little bit like the conductor of an orchestra. Each musician in the orchestra, they are professionals. They know how to play their instrument, and they're going to do a great job. However, in order to make a, 
a beautiful music. Uh, requires the conductor to ensure that that musician, within each musician within the orchestra, plays at the right time. If not, if you didn't have this type of temporal control, this orchestration, it would simply lead to chaotic noise, and you wouldn't make beautiful music. Well, the same is true at a biological level. What these circadian clocks do is they orchestrate cellular processes in a temporal fashion. They make sure that these processes are only active at specific times of the day. And this really has several noteworthy implications. So, for example, if these clocks, clocks become dysfunctional, uh, that is going to mean that you lose this temporal control, and that invariably leads to disease. So shift workers are a great example. They disrupt their circadian clocks through behaviors, and they have increased risk of obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and even um, cancer. Wow. Secondly, um, because these clocks exist and you have this temporal control of pathways, it means your body responds to the environment depending on the time of the day at which it's stimulated. And a great example is that second thing that you were talking about, and that is nutrition. So because metabolic pathways change in a time of day manner, the time at which you consume nutrients impacts whether your body is going to take those nutrients and burn them as a fuel, is instead going to store them as some kind of fuel, which could lead to weight gain, or it could even take that the carbon from nutrients and convert it into some kind of signaling molecules leading to, if they accumulate, leading to cellular dysfunction. And all of this is going to be time of day dependent. So here's a great example. And this is an example that we, we reported recently. And to this day, it still, it still shocks me. Um, so there are a family of amino acids known as the branch chain amino acids that are abundant in protein-rich foods such as red meat. Okay. It's well known that if branched-chain amino uh, and I'm sorry, it's well known that an elevation of branched-chain amino acids in our circulation, in our blood, is associated with many of the diseases we study, like obesity and diabetes and cardiovascular disease. So several years ago, we asked a very simple question. If we were to eat branched-chain amino acids at specific times of the day, will the heart respond differently to that nutrient? So we did this in animal models. So we did it in mice. We fed mice either branched-chain amino acids for breakfast or for dinner. Okay. We found that when we fed branched-chain amino acids to the mice at breakfast, we weren't able to see a big impact on the heart. However, when we fed branched-chain amino acids to mice at dinner time, within four hours, the heart cells increased in size by 70%. It's a huge number. It really, to this day, it just, it just blows my mind. Wow. And it really shows the impact that time of day um, can have on our response to nutrients. That's a very drastic example, and it's having me rethink steak dinners for sure. Maybe you should have steak breakfast instead. Yeah, steak and eggs instead. Oh my goodness, that is a very cool example. And I want to talk a little bit more about 
your research. So over your career officially, I think you just mentioned um, you've authored over 200 peer-reviewed research articles, which is incredible, um, and held numerous appointments in academia. But you also have found the time to dedicate to teaching and mentorship. Uh, why do you think that this aspect of your job is so important to you? And how do you balance your research and your teaching? That's that's a really great question. Thank you, Sarah. Um, you know, as a as a principal investigator of an academic lab, there there's really sometimes we feel great pressure to show productivity at the levels of getting grants and publishing high impact papers. So much so that it all it sometimes seems that ac the academic mission of education takes a back seat. In reality, I personally think that education and mentorship are at the core of every academic institution and, and that we really need to push this further. Um, as I mentioned uh, previously, um, at a personal level, I would not be where I am today without the influence of dedicated educators and mentors. I'm simply a product of their influence and their guidance throughout the years. So I feel that as members of academic uh, institutions, it's essential that we pass this gift on to future scientists. I often find that during the process of interacting with trainees, um, especially very bright and motivated trainees, um, they often challenge me to question and really to question and rethink some of the, the concepts that I've, I've kind of glossed over in the past, unfortunately, very foolishly. Um, and I often you know, take some things for granted and they really challenge you. And that's great because that scientific exchange between, you know, between a mentor and a trainee is acting in a symbiotic manner. It's benefiting both the trainee and also the mentor. And invariably, that's going to enrich the research that's being performed. It's going to lead the science in new directions. And ultimately, it's going to lead to new discoveries. So personally, I can't imagine working uh, in an environment that doesn't consider education and mentorship as being important because it's certainly been very important to me. And, and I feel strongly that I really um, I greatly enjoy giving back. Yeah, that's incredible. And I know earlier you mentioned um, your mentor who was kind of a descendant of Dr. Kreb. And right. I feel like a lot of young scientists will now view you as their descendant of Dr. Kreb and kind of pushing that passion for science forward. And really, I think developing those mentor relationships is so important for keeping young people interested in the field and for keeping like innovative science going. You're absolutely right. We've got to keep on passing this on. Um, and uh, I like your analogy there. It's almost like a family tree. Mm -hmm. you know, someone like Krebs at the top. Heinrich would be uh, a son, and I guess I'm a grandson. And, <laughs> and then my trainees are going to be great-grandsons and daughters uh, yeah. as well of, of future scientists that are descendants of, of really some outstanding mentors, uh, including Heinrich and Krebs. So amazing. I really want to thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it really was a pleasure to have you with us. 
Thank you, Sarah. I really appreciate it. it was, it's, been, it's been wonderful. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. that you enjoyed this episode of Real Science and that you'll tune in to future episodes where scientists, just like you, answer questions about their life, their work, and share insights into what it's like to be doing real science. Don't forget to subscribe.